Put me please to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, verse 14. John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we come before you again, thanking you for your word, for its eternal truth, for your word is eternal truth. We pray, Lord God, that by your spirit, you would speak to us with the truth of your word. More than this, Lord God, we ask as always, that by your grace and your strength, we would not only be hearers of your word, but do us also, in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Jesus speaks of the serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up on a pole called the nest by Moses as a picture or a type of himself on the cross. As he was lifted up on the cross, so the serpent lifted up by Moses foreshadows it. Moses lifts up the serpent, Jesus is lifted up on the cross. This serpent in Hebrew is called Nehushtan. Nehushtan. From the word Nehoshet, literally meaning the bronze thing or the copper thing. Bronze thing. Same word in Hebrew. Nehushtan. In biblical typology, the closer or further you went into the Holy of Holies, the more precious the metals became. Outside, everything was bronze. The altar was plated with bronze. It was on the altar was sacrificed for sin was made, a type of the cross. And so it speaks of this judgment. Bronze speaks of judgment. But it is a serpent. A serpent. We're told in the book of Revelation and in the book of Genesis. A serpent is a picture of Satan, the devil, particularly in his mode of seducer. So why is something that is a picture of Satan, a picture of evil, also a picture of Christ, lifted up on the cross? Why is something that represents Satan in biblical imagery, used as a symbol of Jesus on the cross. Because when he was lifted up on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. He who was without sin took our sin to give us his righteousness. The Father poured out the wrath to our sin on his Son. We followed Satan. Therefore, Either we go to the same judgment as Satan, or someone becomes personified to take that judgment on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin. So Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, on the nest, on the pole, and the people, by looking at it, were not destroyed when the serpent spit them. With this in view, let's turn back to Numbers 16 and read this story, the Nehushtan.
Verse 41. But the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You're the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. And it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned towards the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it and appeared in glory. Now we see what happens here. We looked at this the other night, or yesterday. The people begin looking to blame Moses and Aaron for their sin. And in this sin, they were wanting to go back to Egypt. They were seduced by Korach into longing for the things of Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us this. It's always a picture of the world. But the sin is repeated again in the book of Numbers. Turn ahead, please, to the book of Numbers chapter 21. Verse 5. And the Lord spoke against the, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food, being, being the manna. The picture of the Lord and the word of God. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, and because we have spoken against the Lord and against you, intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. As we looked at yesterday, he's a type of Christ. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent, and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So once again, we have a rebellion against Moses and against the Lord. <clears throat> and as a judgment, the serpent bites. Sin always has a repercussion. The serpent bites, and the bite is poison. It kills. Well, something happens. The first thing that happens is the people acknowledge the sin. We have sinned in verse 7. Had spoken against the Lord and you. Whenever people turn against God, they will always turn against godly leaders. Backsliders will always turn against faithful preachers. What happens? They acknowledge their sin. There must be a repentance. If there is no repentance, the judgment for sin remains. Now again, this stands in contrast to what you read in Purpose Driven Church. What's being taught today by Rick Warren and others is on page uh, 381. If you see a person living immorally or living in sin and into substance abuse, don't tell them to repent. Just tell them 
they need Jesus in their life. After Jesus comes into their life, God will clean them up. We warned about this the other night. If they don't repent, Jesus isn't coming into their life. He's confusing justification with sanctification. I've explained this before, but for the sake of the video, we'll do it again. Salvation is past, present, future. It is past, present, and future. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. When we were saved, when we were first born again, we were justified. I was saved February of 1972. I was Justified, February 1972. Justification. How am I justified? Even though I was a cocaine addict, a drug dealer, and a lot of other things, a fornicator, God took the wrath for my sin and placed it on Jesus. The sin was judged on the cross. An innocent man went to the cross instead of a guilty one. I was justified. When you were first saved, you were justified. At present, if I want to go out and score some cocaine, I have to crucify that desire. This is the work of the Spirit. I'm being saved. I am being sanctified. Justification has to do with the sin. Sanctification has with the desire of the old nature to continue to sin. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Lift up your head, your redemption draws near. We've been saved, we're being saved, we shall be saved. We've been justified, we are being sanctified, we shall be redeemed. We've died with Christ, we are dying with Christ, we shall die in Christ and be resurrected. Salvation is past, present, and future. Justification has to do with the spirit. We have a spirit. When we're born again, when we're justified, the Lord breathes on us and we become a new spiritual creation. We've been saved spiritually. But the Bible speaks of the renewal of your mind. Sanctification has to do with the soul, the consciousness. 
In the resurrection or the rapture, they're the same event. They happen simultaneously. It's the body. Sin affects us physically, psychologically, and spiritually. God first changes us spiritually. He's changing us psychologically. He shall change us physically. We shall be changed. Past, present, future. Justification, sanctification, redemption. Spirit, soul, and body. We've been saved. We're being saved. We shall be saved. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in all three phases. But justification is predominantly the work of the Son. Now, God so loved the world, he gave his son. The Holy Spirit convicts us and draws us to the son, but it's the son who justifies us by taking us in. The work of sanctification, it is Haruch Kodesh, the spirit of holiness is the Holy Spirit, predominantly the work of The Holy Spirit. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit is at the forefront of what God does. Justification, the Son is at the forefront of what God does. But it was God, it was the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, the work of the Father. Now Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. We're not saying it's only the Son, only the Spirit, only the Father, but we're saying that the Son is at the forefront of justification. The Spirit is at the forefront of sanctification. Jesus did not even know the day of his return. Only the Father did. Okay. Now I again emphasize, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in all three. It's just that the Son is at the forefront the Spirit's at the forefront. The Father's at the forefront. Okay. The Father draws us to the Son through the Spirit. I will raise him up on the last day, but it was the Father who raised the Son. You can't separate them. You can only distinguish their functions. <laughs> that's all. Okay. But that's what the Bible teaches about salvation. It's past, present, future. Justification, sanctification, redemption. Okay. But in verse 7 of Numbers 21, the people had to recognize their sin. If there is not a recognition of sin, there'll be no justification. He cannot intercede for sinners unless they admit that's what they are. Rick Warren preaches and teaches a lie. Correction. Rick Warren preaches and teaches many lies. This is one of them. There must be a repentance or there will be no second birth. 
Lord tells Moses, make the fiery serpent. And when you lift it up, if the people look on it, when the serpent bites them, they won't die. This does not say the serpent won't bite. There's repercussion for sin. I have a distorted nasal septum from cocaine. Yes, the Lord has given me a new spirit. He is giving me a new mind. In the resurrection, I will receive a new nose, hopefully smaller than the one I presently have. The serpent's going to bite. There's going to be a repercussion for sin. It's going to have its consequences. But it does not have the power to kill because Christ died on our behalf if we look upon him. Okay. Let's continue. So far, we have something that Jesus said is a type, a shadow, an image of him crucified on the cross being lifted up as the atonement for our salvation. It is a good thing. It is a God-ordained thing. It is a picture, an image of Christ on the cross. So far, so good. But now let's look where the Nehushtan shows up the next time. Turn with me, please, to 2 Kings chapter 18. church, in the Greek Orthodox Church, or Eastern Orthodox Church, which here in Melbourne area is mainly Greek Orthodox, but in other areas it could be Russian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, the Byzantine tradition, let's just call it Eastern Orthodox, here they're mostly Greeks, but other areas of the world, they could be Romanian or they could be Russian Orthodox or something like that, but it's all basically the same. Or the Mormons, or now the emergent church are all into graven images, icons. And of course their argument becomes, well, God told Israel to put cherubs on the ark and to make the Nehushtan. You shall not make a graven image of anything in heaven above or earth beneath. Well, God told Israel to do it. It can't be that. Does the scripture contradict itself? Well, if you read it carefully, and if you read it in Hebrew, certainly, you shall not make a graven image of anything in heaven above or earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In Hebrew, hishtakvaya, bow down. Greek, proskuto. It is the veneration of these images. Serving them. Avodah in Hebrew burning incense candles before them, venerating them, dressing up a statue of Mary in a gown and putting a crown of flowers on her head. They do all this stuff, sing Ave Maria. No matter what they say, this is idolatry. 
You shall not make an image to bow down to it or serve it. It is not a polemic against religious art. It is a polemic against idolatry. However, God ordained this to be made. But we read in Hezekiah's revival in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, something happened. There's a big revival. He's a good king. Verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, got rid of the pagan stuff, and he cut down the Asherah, the female cult deities. But he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nahushtah. This is something that God ordained to be constructed. This is something that God commanded. This is something that Jesus said is a picture of himself crucified on the cross. Yet in a revival, Hezekiah destroys it. And rightly so. Why does he destroy something that God ordained? Why does he destroy something that's biblical? Why does he destroy something that is a representation of Christ on the cross in Christ's own words? Because they were burning incense before it. They were bowing down to it. They were serving it. What is the Nehushtan, an image of Christ on the cross? It is a crucifix. It's a crucifix. Well, what's wrong with the crucifix? Christ died for our sin. It's Jesus on the cross. What's wrong with the crucifix on the end of the rosaries? It's in the Bible. He died for our sin. You're saying it's wrong? Well, to begin with, I think every Christian should have a crucifix. The problem is, the wrong person is on it. He is risen. He's no longer on it. But he tells us, pick up your cross and follow me. Sanctification, crucify the old nature. By all means, get a crucifix. But there should be a statuette of us on it. <laughs> I should be wearing a crucifix with Jacob Prash on it. You should be wearing a crucifix with you on it. He is risen. The problem with the crucifix is the wrong person is on it. It's easier to have a crucifix hanging on the wall than to pick up your cross and follow Christ. It's easier to keep him on the cross than to crucify the flesh and its sinful desires. They bow down to it. It becomes an object of religious veneration. We've warned about this many times. We'll go through it again for the sake of the camera. Turn to 1 Peter 3.18, please.
For Christ died for sins once and for all, says Peter. He died once. The doctrine of the Mass says he continues to die sacramentally, doesn't it? If you witness the Catholics, or if you were a Catholic, mark these verses down in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 27. Who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then the sins of the people. This he, he did once and for all when he offered himself up. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal means outside of time, forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one. Not the Mass again and again. Not a priest again and again. Verse 14, For by one offering he's perfected. If something's perfected, you can't improve upon it. Perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. But the justification was perfect. You understand? Moses kept hitting the rock. It's like crucifying Christ again and again and again. We pointed out the other night, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass is a fundamental rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a different gospel. He dies once. He's no longer on the cross. The Nahushtan had long given up its purpose. Yes, God ordained it. The cross has long ago fulfilled its purpose when he justified us. Now it should be we who carry the cross. Not Christ. He's risen. Notice it's a good thing that becomes a bad thing. It is a truth that becomes a lie. It's something ordained by God that is corrupted by man into something God never wanted or intended it to be. And it's even biblical, in a sense. This is the problem. When you try to explain to a Catholic person or a Greek Orthodox person what is wrong with the crucifix, it's in the Bible. Look, he died for our sins on the cross. That's true. God ordained it a hushtan. But you've turned it into something it was never intended it to be. Worshipping the image. Not the one who used to be on it. We should be on it ourselves, not him. He's risen. That is the way it works. This is what we might call
the genesis of idolatry. The origin of idolatry, where it comes from, where it springs from, where it sprouts from, its ontogeny. Where does idolatry come from? It comes from something good that is turned into something bad. It comes from something biblical that is turned into something unbiblical and even contra-biblical. This is the genesis of idolatry. And of it, the Word of God speaks much. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty, certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No immoral, meaning sexually immoral, or impure person. Impure means mixture. Impure means a mixture. Remember, God hates mixture. We looked at this the other night. Hebrew Tahor. King David left the whore Brahmi Elohim, created me a pure heart, not clean heart. King James mistranslates it. Pure heart, no mixture. Greek. A catharsis. Catharsis is something totally cleansed, pure. A catharsis is not. The mixture. It speaks about sexual sin. That's a good example. Why? God's first commandment to man. His first commandment, go forth and multiply. He made man in his image and likeness. First thing he said, God is a chad, you become a chad. Re- re- reproduce, or not reproduce, but reflect my image and likeness as a matter of day beings. His first command, go forth and multiply. Homosexuals, of course, cannot keep that commandment. They cannot have children. Therefore, homosexuals and lesbians want ours. They want to teach it in schools. They want the right to adopt, artificially inseminate. They want other people's. And of course, the British government's already given it to them. The Australian government may not be too far from doing the same. This first command, go forth and multiply. This first command, consummate marriage, have sex. First command. That's good. Oh yeah, sex is real good. If God created anything better than sex, he must be keeping it for himself. Fair enough. 
It's got to be pure. So you meet this girl, you meet this guy, and you fall in love. Now, if the love is real, if it's real love, not lust, you'll get married. Then you will consummate the relationship. But if it's before you get married, it's, well, I really do love her. I really do love him. Well, maybe you do. Well, we're planning on getting married. Maybe you are. Well, we're engaged. Maybe you are. But you are not yet married. You've not yet made the vow to God. Well, it's real love. We really love each other. Yeah, but there's also lust, because if you really loved her, you would do the honorable thing. No, you are not going to love her. You are going to violate her. There is a big difference between loving her and violating her. There's a big difference between loving your husband and allowing yourself to be violated by someone who is not. But we're really in love! There's a mixture. <laughs> now, at best, there's a mixture. <clears throat> of course, the world is just casual sex now. I'm talking about even when there's real love. <laughs> it's a mixture. It is not to whore. It is love, power, impure, a mixture. You can get a solution. It could be 96% pure. <laughs> you could have something that's 99% pure water, 1% arsenic, right? I looked at that the other night. <laughs> it's still impure, well, it's mostly good. <laughs> doesn't work that way but then after the impurity or a covetous man who is an idolater you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I used to misunderstand covetousness. Actually, I half understood covetousness. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Same as it says in Ephesians. Do not be deceived by the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine homosexuals, thieves, nor the covetous. Notice the relationship there, once more, between sexual immorality, covetousness, and idolatry. I used to think the real problem with covetousness is if you begin to covet that which belongs to another, it's going to tempt you to steal it. If you covet someone's wife, 
or someone's husband, it's going to tempt you to engage in adultery. That's what's wrong with covetousness. Well, I was right in what I affirmed, but I was wrong, mistaken, misguided in what I ignored. I was right in what I said, but I was wrong in what I failed to say. Covetousness is not most associated with theft or adultery. It's most associated with idolatry. That which you covet will become your God. Now in the Bible, there is righteous coveting. It is entirely biblical to covet someone's prayers. I covet your prayers. I'm going to Banda Ache where they persecute Christians with a Sharia in a few weeks. I covet your prayers. I've got a son in a combat division of the Israeli army. I covet your prayers. But I don't covet your house, your wife, your bank account, your business, your success. I just covet your prayers. Coveting is not the problem. It's what we covet that's the problem. You covet that which belongs to another, it will become your God. But let's understand this. In the genesis of idolatry, the way idolatry begins, it is always a corruption of something good. It always begins as a corruption of something good. We talked about this the other night with the high places. They didn't begin worshipping Molech and Baal on those high places. They began worshipping Yahweh unbiblically. It's always a corruption of something good that is the genesis of idolatry. It doesn't matter what it is. Could be the crucifixion. That's good. Well, good for us. Could be sexuality. That's good. Could be anything. Success. Could be anything. As long as it's good and can be corrupted. That's the only thing that matters to the enemy. The only thing that matters to the devil is if it's something that's good that can be corrupted. He doesn't particularly care what it is, you understand. But it goes beyond that. It's just that uh, sexuality lends itself to it more easier than most things. Material greed lends itself to it more easily than other things. But anything will do, as long as it becomes an idol, as long as it becomes what we worship instead of worshiping the true God. He'll go along with anything. As long as he can corrupt something that's good of education in the state schools, this is being something that children are being indoctrinated with, without parental control. There are people who don't think there's anything wrong with unnatural sex, homosexuality, lesbianism. That's how far it goes. That they don't see anything wrong with it. Unbelievable. There was a thing on television several years ago in America 
wealthy Arab oil sheikhs from Saudi Arabia were flying in on private jets to India. They were giving $200 to the parents of little girls from impoverished families in India, taking little girls on a so-called employment contract, but it was just slavery, putting them in harems, flying them back to Saudi Arabia and using these underage girls, I mean, some of them as young as seven, as sex slaves. Some of the sheiks were in their 70s. And when questioned, well, what's wrong with it? Our prophet did it. Yeah, he did. At the age of 54, Muhammad married Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakir. Took a virginity at the age of nine. That's what the Hadith teaches about Islam. And they once said, and I'm away, here in the Western world, we have a name for religious clerics who sexually violate children. We call them Jesuits. <laughs> the Mohammedans said, well, what's wrong with it? Catholic bishops in Australia were caught protecting pedophile clergy. <laughs> Unbelievable. It begins with a mixture, <laughs> but it ends with something totally depraved. You understand? It might begin 98% pure. It'll end 100% impure. That's why God says it's 100% impure to begin with. It's either tahor or lo tahor. It is either catharsis or a catharsis. God knows how it's going to end up. So he says the whole thing is no good right from the beginning. <laughs> but it goes beyond this. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 24. The Olivet Discourse. to get his cloak. The mission field, the mantle of authority, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah says, give me your cloak. Mantle of authority. What Jesus is warning about is in the last days there is a tremendous danger of ministry becoming an idol. Think about Peter. Jesus told the apostles, I will make you fishers of men. In figure, the apostles were doing evangelism. Turn with me, please, to the book of the Gospel of St. John. Chapter 21. 
Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered, No. And he said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. They therefore cast the nets, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. The disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea and went to swim to Jesus. We can fish and fish and fish, but until the Lord directs our evangelism, we're not going to catch many. Today we have substituted biblical evangelism directed by the Holy Spirit with programs like 40 Days of Purpose, Alpha, Gym Challenge in England, other such garbage. Programs based on marketing and psychology instead of based on biblical principles, which demands repentance, among other things, that is rejected by the seeker-friendly crowd. Jesus tells us where to cast the nets, but as soon as the call comes up, it is the Lord, Peter puts on his shirts. Now, why would you put your shirt on to dive overboard? Normally, you take it off. Because it's a picture of the garments of salvation, isn't it? The wedding garment. He immediately dives overboard and goes to be with Jesus. He fishes and fishes and fishes, but as soon as the call comes up, it's the Lord. That's it. He's overboard. What happens when the work of the Lord becomes more important than the Lord of the work? Here's the problem. It's the Nehushtan. It's something that's biblical. Something that God ordained. Something that's established in the word of God. Something good. That becomes corrupted into something bad. They are no longer building the kingdom of God. They're building their own empires. If God says, get a building, get a building. There are reasons God may want you to have your own building. Mom and toddlers groups can meet in that building during the week. Wonderful evangelistic opportunity for single parents. Maybe begin a Christian school. A youth club to get kids off drugs and into Christ. There's all kinds of reasons God might want you to have a building. If he says get a building, get a building. If he says get a building. But what happens when the building program is not ordained by God, but ordained by men? They're not building a house to the Lord. They're building a monument to themselves. Every time I drive by that abomination in Southern California, Crystal Cathedral, Robert Shuler's joint, I pray for a slingshot. I hate that place. It's a monument to a man. It's a house for the Lord. No, 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 no. Their God becomes the building. When I was in Toronto, I visited the lunatic asylum with the cross on the roof, known as the Airport Vineyard Church. I'd been there for other reasons, but I went to see the freak show for myself. Wow, I happened to be in town, and as I pointed out the other night, the first thing I noticed that the freak show was not even the freaks, but what the freaks were talking about. No 
nobody was talking about Jesus. They're all talking about, I couldn't move my hand down. They, they couldn't stop it from shaking. They weren't focused on the Lord. They were focused on manifestations. The manifestations were more important than the Lord. They seek. What happens? You begin by seeking the gift above the giver. You begin by seeking the manifestation of the Holy Spirit above the Holy Spirit himself, then you wind up with a counterfeit. In the beginning, it might be something impure. 98% pure, 2% impure. In the end, the whole thing is totally corrupt. It's Toronto or Pensacola or some other such nonsense. They were worshipping the experience. That's what they were going there for. They weren't going there to get more of Jesus. They were going there to get more of this. That's what they were all talking about. And I openly saw the word of God mocked. They did the whole vineyard worship thing. And a guy stood up and he opened the Bible. And it's exactly what happened. I am the way. And then all of them, in total levity, begin cracking up laughing like that, screaming, laughing like crazy. The word of God was just being mocked. And they said this was the Holy Spirit. It's open blasphemy, open mockery of the word of God. This was Toronto. This is that freak show. And the liars who propagated it, like Phil Pringle. The Assemblies of God. And Kevin Connor. It was a freak show. I saw it myself. I saw people doing things that were the same manifestations I saw in demonic possession in Indonesia, the jungle. Same things. Well, it may begin as a mixture. Well, it's not totally pure. The whole thing begins totally corrupt. Once more, what do you have? He hates the mixture. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It'll always end in something completely twisted and perverted and sick. The only thing more deranged than perverted will be the people involved in it. That'll be the end product. The only thing more deranged than perverted will be the people deluded into subscribing to it. God hates it. Well, what happens? That became their idol. Well, manifestations of the Holy Spirit are biblical. It's in the Bible. <clears throat> yeah, so was the Nehushtan. But they can't see it. They can't see what's wrong with the Nehushtan. They couldn't see what's wrong with Toronto. They just can't see it. Well, let's go beyond this. Are they building the empire of themselves or are they really building the kingdom of God when the Lord calls if they're not willing to lay it down and dive overboard that tells you a lot I've known pastors who God blessed them they built successful churches successful ministries and one day they stood up and said my wife and myself have been praying for some time my time at this fellowship has ended we need to find a new senior pastor. I'm going to Liberia 
I'm going to Bolivia. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to the third world. The ministry was not their idol. God was their God. If somebody is not willing to lay it down, it is their ministry. It's not the Lord's. Well, let's look. There's a big problem with this. There's always a problem with Nehushtan. Because it is biblical, because it is something that God himself ordained, because it is something established in Scripture, it's almost impossible for those people to see how it's wrong. Until God opens their eyes, if they want them open. On the David and Goliath tape, we explain about the ism. Every false religion in the world, every cult in the world, worships the ism. If you understand Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't worship Jehovah. They worship the Watchtower Society. They worship the ism. If you really understand about Mormons, they do not worship Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Their Jesus Christ is the half-brother, is the brother of Satan. That's what they say. They don't have the same Jesus as us. They don't worship Jesus. They worship the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. They worship Mormonism. They worship Deism. If you understand Muslims, especially fundamentalist Muslims, they don't worship Allah, the Arabian moon god. They worship Islam. If you really understand Roman Catholicism, you don't see real Roman Catholicism in Australia. You have to go to Poland or Ireland or the Philippines to see it, or Latin America. But if you've really seen real Roman Catholicism, you understand something. These people do not worship Jesus or God or even Mary. They worship, quote-unquote, Holy Mother, the Church. The institution becomes deified. Every year, a Good Friday, in the Philippines, they crucify dozens of people. Dozens are nailed to a cross. Then they get off the cross for a cigarette break and get back on it. <laughs> they worship the ism. Every cult, every false religion was talking to someone about Hasidic Jews earlier. If you understand Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews, they worship Talmudic Judaism. They all worship the ism. Well, <laughs> we don't worship Christianity. We worship Christ. <laughs> What happens when you deify the institution? What happens when you deify the organization? What happens when you deify the ministry? What happens when you deify the building? You have an idol. But it's ordained in scripture. Jesus said, I came to build my church. God also said to make the Nehushtan. But they just can't see it. It's almost impossible to explain this to people until God opens their eyes. 
Why is it so difficult to explain this to people? Why is it so hard for people to see what's wrong with the crucifix? What's wrong with a ministry that is deviated from Scripture? Why can't people see these idols for what they are? In conclusion, turn with me to where God shows us exactly why they can't see it. Turn with me, please, to the 115th Psalm. We'll begin in verse 4. False religion, even if it comes in the name of Pentecostalism or something, will always come down to money and idolatry. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They can't even smell a rat. No discernment. <laughs> Hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. At least not one God's going to hear. Look at this. Verse 8. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. You become like that which you worship. You become conformed to the image and likeness of your God. Paris Hilton. She looks like a slut. Why would a multi-multi-millionaires primary heir to controlling shares in an international hotel chain want to make a porno movie of herself and put it on the internet so people can watch her for free doing something that should not take place out of holy wedlock? Why would she do that? Now, I've known prostitutes. They were usually women who got involved in drugs or something like this, and they resorted to that to get money <laughs> to finance their drug habits. I can understand why a drug addict would do that. I can understand why an uneducated woman who wasn't bad-looking might resort to Internet pornography because she couldn't make it in a profession or a business or marry a decent guy. I can understand why, why some people would do that. Why would somebody born with a gold spoon in their mouth do that? She looks like her God. They worship. What do they worship? <laughs> promiscuity. They worship promiscuity. That becomes their God, so they look like it. You become like that which you worship. Why does Kenneth Copeland have a fleet of private jets? I mean, it's not like Missionary Aviation Fellowship have private planes to fly missionaries and medical supplies into the heartland of the third world. That makes sense. There are legitimate reasons why legitimate ministries would need airplanes. I have no problem with that. But why would you have a private fleet of executive jets paid for with contributions of Christians? Why does he live like that? 
Why does he live like a billionaire businessman? A billionaire businessman might sell real estate, might sell technology, might sell intellectual property. He's selling holes for donuts. There's no substance in what he's selling. But people buy it anyway. Why? You become like that which you worship. His God is money. That's what he becomes. You become conformed to the image and likeness of that which you worship. Let's look further. Those who make them become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. You trust in money, that's what you're going to become like. You trust in sexuality, particularly promiscuity. The older you get, the more you're going to pay for the Botox treatments, I assure you. <laughs> Nobody stays good looking forever, not even me. <laughs> good thing for me, I'm a married man. I couldn't get a date in a woman's house of detention. But anyway. <laughs> Everyone who makes them become like them. Look at this. When you see somebody genuflecting before a statue with rosary beads in their hand, praying to Mary, a statue of Mary, can that statue see them? No. That statue can't look at them. Can that statue hear what they're saying? No. A statue can't hear what you're saying. The statue has eyes, but it can't see. The statue has ears, but it can't hear. Everyone who trusts in them, those who make them, will become like them. Why can't that Catholic see that that is idolatry? Because that which they worship can't see and can't hear, therefore neither can they. The statue can't see them, the statue can't hear them, so they can't see the truth of God's word, and they can't hear it when you tell them. It's impossible. They can't see it, they can't hear it. It's impossible for them to see and hear, because the statue can't. I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had Jehovah's Witnesses admit that their leaders were false prophets by their own definition. But when it comes to leaving it, to putting their faith in the real Christ, they can't see it, they can't hear it. Why? Can an organization see or hear? It's an ethereal entity. You become like that which you worship. You become conformed to the image and likeness of that which you worship. When Jehovah's Witnesses knock on the door, it doesn't matter what country you're in, they all say the same things and talk alike, don't they? <laughs> because that organization is their God, so they become like it. They're all the personality cloning. They all become like it. You become conformed to the image and likeness. It didn't matter what country it was in, Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the people caught up in the laughing drunken thing, they were all the same. You tried to show them, couldn't see it. Tried to tell them, they couldn't hear it. Blind. They're deaf. 
because so is their God. That in which you trust is what you will become like. That in which you set your trust is that which you will become like. You trust in a crucifix, a graven image, you'll become like it. You trust in an organization, you'll become like it. You trust in a hype artist, money preacher, you'll become just like him. You become like that in which you trust. You become conformed to the image and likeness of that of which is your God, in what you trust. We are not called to be conformed to the image and likeness of any man, including this one. We are not called to be conformed to the image and likeness of any organization, including Moriel. We are not called to trust in any man, especially Jacob Prash. Especially. <laughs> Don't trust in any ministry. God may use it. If it's biblical, he may want you to support it. If it's biblical. But when it becomes an idol, when you wind up with an Avustan, oh, God may have established it, he may have ordained it. But once it has become your God, your focus, it becomes that in which you trust. We are called to trust in no man and no thing, no ministry, no organization. We are called to be conformed to the image and likeness of no man, no ministry, no organization. If you do, you'll wind up deaf and blind. We are called to be conformed to the image and likeness of the one in whom we can indeed trust. We all know his name. Jesus Christ. Hamashiach Yeshua Adonino.